0: Welcome to episode two of State of the Game, the golf podcast that does not offer to fix your slice or add 10 yards to your game, but does talk about the stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray. Thanks for tuning in and thanks also for the great response we had to our first episode posted a couple of weeks ago. It was encouraging to see so many of you enjoying the sorts of topics we're planning to talk about here and the feedback on Jeff Shackelford's site was fantastic to read. So thanks for that and please keep the comments coming now to this week's show, we've got some interesting stuff to chat about. My co-host today is Jeff Shackleford and he has just returned from the USGA annual meeting in Houston. Now, if ever there was a golf nerds dream trip, this would have to be it. So we're going to look forward to hearing from Jeff about that. Some really interesting stuff coming out of that get together, not the least of which what we might expect from the new USGA president, Glenn Nagle. We'll be chatting with Jeff in a moment about some of the happenings from there. Then later in the show, we've got some snippets sent in by our European correspondent, John Huggin. Huggy sat down with everybody's favourite player manager, Chubby Chandler in Qatar to have a chat about the state of the game, and as always, Chubby had some interesting thoughts on the US to a Q school changes, appearance fees, and the general international circus. That is professional golf. But before we come to all that, I must introduce my co-host for the day. You've already heard him giggling, Jeff Shackelford. And Jeff, I was howled down in our first episode when I pointed out that, as Tiger put it some years ago, chicks dig the long ball. But it seems I have an ally in this department, as reported on your very own blog, no less than the chief marketing officer of the USPGO Tour, Tom Wade, came out this week, and he said the power game is driving interest in golf. Welcome to the show, and what do you think about that?
1: Well, thanks, Rod. Um, yeah, that, those were very interesting comments, especially because I read them, uh, the interview right after returning from the USGA meeting, where, where you had this major change in tone uh, about the subject of power and distance. And then here you have him being asked if, if, if uh, the power game is driving ratings. Well, he actually avoided the question of, of ratings because ratings are not up. Uh, if, if, if ratings were driven by the power game, they'd, they'd be astronomical. <laughs> they'd be comparable to the NFL here in America.
0: There'd be no other sport on TV, Jeff. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's a ludicrous theory. And, and if you talk to television people, it's very rare that distance uh, translates well to television. NBC does a pretty good job. They have a camera called the Speed Shot where they put it about halfway on a, a drivable par 4 and you kind of get the thrill of the ball flying by and you... You have the, the, you see the, the carry. But otherwise, golf on television really doesn't thrive because of power. It, 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 you, uh, the thing you see are, are putts being made or great iron shots or great recovery shots. Long drives don't really translate to, to television. So I understand what he was trying to get at, that there's a younger group of players who are um, a more aggressive, uh, swing hard, go for it. Uh, and they are. They're exciting. They're athletic. They, they dress well. Uh, they have an energy about some of them uh, that, that is exciting. It's great. I, I don't doubt that. But the tour, for them to be advocating uh, power golf, especially with the slow play this year that's gone on, which is a, a, certainly a result in part by guys hitting it so far and holes backing up and so on and so forth, is uh is a little disappointing.
0: Yeah, I- interesting stuff on your website in the last day or two about that. I can't remember who it was. Was it uh, Ryan Ballingy Maybe had done some 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 research about rounds this year, and I think there was only a couple of rounds that had come in under four and a half hours or something something crazy on the PGA Correct. Tour for it's- the
1: for the last groups of the first uh, five events. There were only two rounds that were under under four hours. Now some of those are quite a few of those are threesomes because they have to play threesomes on the West Coast swing. Uh, shorter days, and they go split tees and all that stuff. But uh, some of the times are just stunning. Yeah. I mean, they're that's just embarrassing.
0: It doesn't matter which way you slice and dice, it does it. It's slow, and that doesn't it's make fun. for exciting TV. Jeff, uh, I just wanted to point that out. Obviously, I'm in line for the chief marketing marketing <laughs> officer's job at the US PGA too. And now me and Tom are uh, we're like that. He says, showing his fingers <laughs> crossed, which is not great for radio. To the USGA meeting, Jeff. I did say there that it is the golf nerds ultimate dream trip. Uh, I imagine that you uh, you had a good time there. Of course, it's a pretty big deal, the USGA annual meeting, and this year in particular, a new president, Glenn Nager. I'd not heard of him before. I understand he's a he's a lawyer. He's argued cases in front of the Supreme Court. From reading the transcripts and hearing a bit of the, the recorded stuff that you've sort of sent to me, um, he seems to be talking in a reasonably tough kind of way in that tough lawyer talk kind of way. What was your sense of just Glenn Nager, the man? It's one thing to read the transcripts, but you were there. What What are your sense from the body language and the tone and the way he was talking? You got any thoughts on Nager and you know, how the, the next two years of the USGA might look?
1: Well, it was pretty stunning. Um, and the more I think about it, the more incredible it gets, because Um, Now, I've only encountered him a few times the last few years, and he's always been very quiet and uh, not said a whole lot. So to actually have the microphone in front of him talking, and and, and anybody who's read the comments will see, um, he makes some very bold statements. Now, this is a a lawyer, and and lawyers choose their words very carefully, and he's very thoughtful. However, he's using some some very strong language in describing uh, the state of the game, essentially, the... Uh, the notion that we need a reset, uh, and he mentions paradigm and 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 these different words were, that he clearly has thought about, uh, and it's unprecedented for a number of reasons. One, the USGA generally does not like to get into discussing the state of the game, uh, and they they and Mike Davis actually talked about that. This is a bit of a shift for them, but they see where golf is headed. They feel a need to step in and and. And try and do at least what they can do uh, within reason to try and help. So that alone, to old style U.S. old guard U.S.G.A. people, is is unusual. Um, and then you also have somebody who is coming out, and and, and we're going to listen to a clip, I think, on this. But he's talking about the language of the rules being a deterrent. And and I think what is interesting about Glenn Nager is this is not somebody who's been around. The Augusta National uh, Golf Establishment world. He's really—he'll tell you—he's fairly new to the game in the sense that uh, when he was asked to be general counsel uh, in 2006, I believe it was of the USGA, he said, "I didn't even know what all those ac- uh, was some half the acronymed golf organization stood for." And so, this is not somebody who has been caught up in that that kind of USGA insular world where the entire game revolves around the rules and uh, uh, the country club set. And, and, I mean, he's talking about public golf. He's talking about trying to figure out ways to, to make golf more affordable. So you had a, the, the most recent president, Jim Hyler, who was a, a super guy and, and, frankly, very progressive, again, for USGA circles to have advocated something like firm and fast. And then you have Glenn Neger come along, and he's basically taking what Hyler established and now trying to take it to another level. And again, for a very conservative organization, this is, uh, this is exciting stuff, and it's but it's what a lot of us have been kind of wanting to see from the USGA for for quite a while.
0: Well, indeed, and 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 a number of controversial topics, and and this is, you know, the, uh, I think you're making the point. The USGA GIA culture has generally been not to get involved in controversy. They're very stayed, very laid back, very careful with what they say about things, and this does seem to be a shift with this bloke. Now, I know that you were particularly intrigued by the the talk around the uh, the USGA annual meeting about taking a fresh look at the belly putter, and I too. I'm intrigued by that, and there was some fabulous stuff. We're going to do a separate, special show on that at some point in the next week or two, because I think there's uh, there's a lot to flesh out about that. Well,
1: but I, I, yeah, and we got some fantastic stuff. Where Negus it, talking
0: about that, indeed. Huh? But you, you touched on his talk about the rules. There, we're just going to have a listen to that clip that you were talking about, and we'll come back and I'll have a chat to you about that in just a sec. Every time people see somebody get a penalty, that they think that didn't
1: give rise to some significant advantage, there's an outcry. Uh, and we, and uh, historically, the, the response to that has been to make the rules of golf more complicated. Add an exception in here. Add an ex- and it's not just the decisions book, it's the rule book, too. I think in 1754, there were 13 rules. There are no decisions and there are no exceptions, and for the traditionalists who want the game to be traditional, I'm not suggesting we go back to 13 rules, but they should be perfectly happy if we could get to 34 rules, each had four parts, we allowed each of two parts to have two exceptions, rather than everyone have seven exceptions and seven exceptions and exceptions upon the exceptions.
0: It actually doesn't sound a whole lot less complicated when he puts it like that, I must say. But my mind immediately turns when I hear that, Jeff, to the situation we saw at Whistling Straits uh, with Dustin Johnson. And every non-golfer that I know saying to me, what was that about? The bloke wins the tournament and then he's not allowed to win it because of some stupid rule. Um, do you think that's what Nager was getting at, that, that, that the rules of the game themselves actually put new golfers off?
1: Uh, that, that's exactly what he was saying, and just the complexity of rules, uh, the language, the wording. I mean, he did. He now he'll use some big words, but he, he's reading these some of these interpretations and decisions, and he's just talking about the basic language is 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 uh, off-putting, and and it is. You pick up the decisions, and you read some of the rules, and and. And And yeah, ha- there you have to have a law degree to try to understand some of these things. and And then, of course, what makes it worse is that usually, if you send suggest this to somebody who knows the rules as a USGA person, they always have this condescending attitude like, well, how yeah, you know, all it takes is just a little bit of time reading <laughs> them. Right. And well, no, you know, that's not true. this is this is hard work, and it and yeah, some situations are complicated, but for the most part, the rules of golf should not be. Uh, that difficult. And it is, it is a off-putting. It is obnoxious sometimes. And so I think it's just unbelievably refreshing that, that A, you have a USGA president talking this way and b he's a, he's a lawyer he's, he's, he's actually kind of mocking his own people yeah. which is, is just so refreshing
0: well careful you might be out of a job we need people to mock lawyers if they start doing it themselves there's a whole industry that's going to disappear <laughs> this Shaq, is, this is true I, I noticed that mike davis spoke uh, somewhat later you, you sent me some clips that you'd recorded and he talked about Uh, How, pardon me, the rules of the game are important for when you want to play the game of golf itself, but that the USGA is not closed to the notion of games that look like golf but aren't played necessarily by the rules of golf. And that's kind of important too, isn't it? That that they're prepared to get behind some of these sorts of initiatives. And he spoke specifically about the event that Jack Nicklaus ran at uh, Muirfield last year with the 8-inch cups and the 12 holes and those sorts of things. And just to put out that message that the USGA is not anti-that, they're just pro the rules being enforced to the letter of the law in things like the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur. Was that the sense that you got? And have you heard that kind of attitude from the USGA before?
1: I I did get a sense of that, except that I think they're trying to walk a very fine line. Uh, They're very stubborn about one set of rules of golf for everybody, but then they're also trying to say we're open to anything that gets people excited, and and, uh, whether it's eight-inch cups or whatever it is, and they're also realizing that they probably need to rethink some of the things that they get involved with in terms of Grow the Game initiatives. They put a lot of money out each year, uh, and they spend a lot, and, and they're probably realizing some of those things are working and some are not. Um, and so it, it's a very curious thing to listen to them talk about. They know that they need to be helpful. Uh, but then at the same time, they are absolutely dead set on, on uh, one set of rules and no idea of bifurcation, which a lot of the manufacturers conveyed to them at the PGA show that they're for now. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting time to watch and see how they uh, kind of step around this,
0: this situation. Well, c- crises do bring interesting things, don't they? And I suppose yeah. um, and I think it's a point that Mike Davis made during the annual meeting. I actually don't think it's a part of the USGA's charter to grow the game, is it? I think they're just no. there to protect the game. So in fact, it's actually not their job. If they wanted to just walk away from the notion of growing the game, they could, couldn't they?
1: They could, but I think they've they've finally come to the realisation, which has taken a while, that um, that their role of Protecting the game, uh, those things that they would do also can help um, at least maybe not grow the game, but keep people in the game who are already in it. And they talked about that at the meeting, that that almost is more alarming for them in a sense that there are golfers who love the game and for whatever reason are not playing anymore. And I think that if they probably stick to focusing on that, they're staying within their charter, but they're also just doing what they they should be doing, which is trying to protect – and strengthen the game and and keep it attractive to to those who who already know it and love it.
0: Yeah, well, the numbers certainly suggest, participation numbers certainly suggest that some triage is required, isn't it? I mean, I know that, and the manufacturers in particular bang on about getting new people to play the game because, of course, then they have to buy equipment. But the reality is, if we could just hang on to the people that already play the game, golf would be looking a whole lot healthier, wouldn't it? Exactly. You know, and nobody ever seems to sort of talk about that. It's all about getting new people to play. But, hey, if we just hang on to the ones that we've got... Well, on all that stuff, Jeff, and, you know, obviously the the relationship between the administrators of the game, particularly those who administer the equipment rules, and the manufacturers, them, manufacturers themselves, particularly in an unusual game like golf where you have no standards. Um, they've set some parameters over the years about what the equipment should be able to do, but you don't have any actual standards. I mean, baseball has one type of bat. Cricket has one type of bat and one type of ball. It's actually quite simple. It's always a relationship of some sort of tension, isn't it? We'll talk in a moment about um, you know what we think might the USGA might be coming to with talking about changing rules and stuff, but I found it really interesting that Dan Burton, who's the chair of the Equipment Standards Committee, he said at the meeting that, and I quote... They have great confidence in their relationship with the golf manufacturing community. It's the best it's been in many years. That's a really interesting thing to say, don't you think? There was a time when the USGA didn't want to be seen to be getting on with the manufacturers. That tension needs to be there, doesn't it? Is it a healthy thing if the USGA and the RNA are getting on and having a great relationship with the manufacturing community?
1: Um. I think it's healthy that they're they have more discussions with them and they discuss things and and keep uh, an open dialogue. Uh, but I, I'm with you that there should be some uh, uh, tension there, some give and take that that uh, hasn't really been there so far. And so uh, it's just it, it, the irony is incredible here. So now you have the manufacturers who actually were opposed to bifurcation a few years ago, and now there's you're starting to see all these signs that they're for that and then you have the USGA steadfast against that so it's almost kind of exhausting at this point to try and keep up with what 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 these two entities uh think of each other and 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 I guess the good news is both are trying to figure out ways to strengthen the game, they just have very different ways of coming uh, at the problem. Well,
0: two two totally different motivations, aren't there? One is completely profit-driven and the other is uh, a history and tradition perspective. Of course, what Dan Burton has said there does seem a little bit contradictory to what his new boss is saying. And here's a a great quote, and I think you you told me, uh, Glenn Nager had some prepared notes and he got up and gave us to give a speech. And you had the prepared notes beforehand, but he strayed from the script, didn't he, a little bit? Uh, from what he had prepared. And, and I think uh, yourself or one of the other journals there, Ryan Harrington had recorded what he actually said as opposed to what was written on the notes. And here's a, a really interesting quote. Our revenues consistently exceed our expenses. We have a substantial reserve to protect us against unforeseen events and litigation in the market in the face of regulatory initiatives that we might implement. They are as close to fighting words as the USGA can get, are they not?
1: They really are. And, and I was, that was the part I was watching the speech closely cause we had it in advance. And then here he goes and he, <laughs> he actually, I, I was, I was yeah, in the old style USGA, you'd expect that uh, if somebody was going off script a little, they might soften those words. And what he actually said in the speech was, was stronger than what was in uh, on paper. And so, um, those certainly could be construed as fighting words as far as I'm concerned. Um, And I think that there's always been this mentality of what is the USGA doing with this war chest? of, And it was $251 million in the – they call it the investment portfolio uh, announced this year. And uh, to actually have somebody come out and say, well, it's it's there in case we just decide that it's time to uh, fight a battle, I – of course, I love that uh, the manufacturers will howl and other people will howl, but I I think it's great that they're they're establishing that um, that that they're in a position of of strength in their point and from their point of view, and um, if need be, um, they'll use it. I think it's I think it's fantastic.
0: Well, it's a it is a. It's a it's a confrontational thing to say, isn't it? It almost throws the gauntlet down to the manufacturers because the thinking has always been that the ma- that the administrators don't want to do anything about the ball in particular and equipment in general because a la the ping case of several years ago, they might get sued and it'll cost them a bunch of money and that's an irresponsible way to spend the money. That the, right. what he has said is the complete opposite of that, isn't it? Is like if the fight comes, we're ready for it. And we've we've got the the reserves. It's remarkable.
1: Well, and they should have this attitude. You know, the manufacturers have gotten to do a lot of things uh, the last fifteen or twenty years, and they've all said they were essential to growing the game. They haven't, and so now uh, it's good to see the USGA say, "Well, let's let's step back here and start talking about things to make the game stronger." And if the game gets stronger, uh, the rules become uh, less obnoxious to uh, to read. If we, we can reduce the cost of a round of golf through better practices environmentally and, and through maintenance and, and do a, a bunch of different things that strengthen the game, your, you, the manufacturers, are going to benefit as well. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what some of us have been trying to you – know, nobody wants to see the manufacturers go away and do poorly, and this is not a us-against-them thing. And, that, and that's what I think is nice to see here is that the manufacturers have always had this uh, 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 sort of a position of strength – uh, and the USGA's kind of been afraid of them, and now we're seeing it kind of swing the other way. And I think that's good. I think they should be tough. And uh, but because it's clear they're not just saying we're going to be tough just for the sake of being tough. We're doing it because we're trying to figure out ways to make the game better and make it better for everybody.
0: Yeah. Now, I wonder whether they've run the numbers, Jeff, and figured out that if Glenn Nager does the representing in any upcoming <laughs> legal battle. The, the savings they'll make on legal fees means that they can afford to lock, no, fight the no, legal no, no, no. fight. This is
1: an organization of lawyers. They will farm it out. They will take care of their friends. Don't In, you worry.
0: Yeah, indeed. Just on that bifurcation, where do you stand on that, Jeff? My sense is that you probably think it's a good idea, but I don't think I've ever actually heard you come out and say it outright. I'll put my cards on the table. I've always been anti the notion of splitting the rules of golf, but more and more the last few years I've come around to thinking that, maybe it's the only way to go forward. Where do you stand? Are you a pro or anti-bifurcation person? Because the USGA said again this week they are totally right. dead against it.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> to Not to, to dance around this, but in an ideal world, no. I think bifurcation is bad and you need one set of rules. This is not an ideal world. And this is a world in which trying to sell a distance rollback, let's say – uh, is very, very difficult. And I believe in bifurcation because I believe it's the only way to do it. And the reason it's the only way to do it is that if you, let's say you have a ball that goes 30 yards shorter, uh, and, and I do believe they have that ball now. Um, they've found it, one that performs well, et cetera, et cetera. The only way to bring that into the game and to make courses more relevant, to make them safer again, All the things, just to to move the direction away from expanding courses but to, to shrinking things down and condensing, the only way to do that is through bifurcation because every good golfer out there thinks that they're a tour player or a tour quality player, and they want to play the game that the professionals play. And so they will adopt that equipment. Just the way soft spikes became a big part of the game once the professional game started adopting it, I believe that, that this is the only way wow. to truly have the rollback uh, that, w- that we need. And, and it's a way to basically sell it. For, for un, you know, lack of a better word, and it, and that's why I'm, that's why I support it.
0: The uh, the distance debate's always interesting. We call it in Australia. We call it the NIMBY effect, which stands for Not In My Backyard. And that's what says mm. um, nuclear waste dumps are a terrific idea, but not in my backyard. Rolling back the ball is a terrific idea, but not for me. That's that seems to be how golfers right. approach it, isn't it? It's great to roll it back for the pros, but not for me. We've really got that now, haven't we? That that, that situation is very real, isn't it?
1: Well, and of course, what, what they're so afraid to do is make the case that says, by the way, you do know that if we roll this ball back uh, for, for Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods and uh, Stuart Appleby, uh, you are not going to see a great impact on people with a different uh, swing speed. And that's I, why they, they were afraid to make that case. I have no idea. Uh, but, but it's pretty well known that today's equipment, the combination of driver and ball – uh, it really, there's a disproportional uh, positive impact for elite golfers that the average player uh, doesn't ex- experience. Uh, as much and yeah. so why that case can't be made, I don't know. Yeah.
0: Interesting, wasn't it? Jack Nicholas said, it was on a bit of a tangent, but a week or two ago, uh, in an interview, that there was a time when he was at the top of his game. He would go and do sort of exhibitions and those sorts of things, or or go to a club and you know he would play off the back tee against the club champion, who'd play off the members tee, and they could kind of play the same game. And the club champion could hit some of the shots that he could hit, and you know be somewhat competitive. And occasionally he'd get beaten. He said categorically." could not happen today go to any golf club in the world get the club champion put him up against Tiger Woods and Tiger Woods is going to flog him every single time because the distance between good amateur golfers and the professional game is now so great that they can't possibly be compared and that wasn't the case you know 30 or 40 years ago when he was in his prime. No, um, no
1: and that's and that's something that uh, you know we that's another show in itself just arguing about the the importance of uh, the relatability and some people very uh, feel very strongly about that some people think it's absolutely a farcical that that's an important thing um, I fall somewhere in between but I generally tend to lean towards I think it's important that we can we can relate to the way they play the game and when you hear Mike Clayton saying that he can't relate to the way Jeff he mm. plays and if you see the way Mike Clayton still plays golf uh, he's still oh. very a very good golfer and that, that's a pretty stunning thing to me.
0: He's an accomplished professional. Of course, it's one of the things we hold up, isn't it? The difference between golf and all other sports is if you're a tennis fan, you never get to play at Wimbledon. But if you're a golf fan, you can go and play at St. Andrews and walk in the footsteps of, of the greats. Take away any relationship that your game might bear to those, and that loses something, doesn't it? It's an intangible, but it does get lost. Uh, and take something away from the game. Yeah, fascinating stuff, Jeff. You must have had an absolute ball. You are a golf nerd. Was it the dream trip for you to the the USGA well, annual meeting? I, I wouldn't quite <laughs> go uh,
1: go a dream trip for a visit to a uh, Hilton hotel in Houston when it's raining and it's there's it's surrounded by shopping malls and. Um, uh, but no, it was it was fun. Uh, it, it's an interesting gathering of uh, interesting people. Uh, Do you reckon – a lot of different? news so, and so it's
0: it's do you reckon we're in exciting times jeff were you sort of excited by some of the things yeah. i'm quite excited about some of the quotes and things that i've seen from uh from you know, the- I,
1: I, I was not excited to go to the meeting i'll be frank yeah, but, <laughs> and, hey. and i i've left it going i just every day i've been uh, se- since i've been thinking about things that were said discussed uh between whether it was glenn Neger or or, or uh, mike davis or even Jim Hyler the outgoing president, um, and some of the discussions at the, at the meetings I had with Dick Ruggie and different people, uh, there's definitely an energy there right now that is very, very different. And whether they can, you know, whether Mr. Neger can take that and build on that, I don't know. It's very hard. He's he's fighting uh, years and years of traditions and, a, and an established uh, view of how things should be done. But uh the fact that they're even discussing some of the things they're discussing and i've posted some of that on my site uh we're going to be doing more i mean just the belly putter thing forget forget the state of the game stuff we love to talk about the fact that they've just gone in a matter of two or three months from from holding their ground on the belly putter uh to talking about anchoring and using the word anchoring uh and and that's huge and i think uh um, you know, and I think that's an important part of all this. you know if they if they don't do something about that, uh, it's going to be very hard for them to really have credibility on other issues because it's so apparent uh, to people that that's just something that's not right. And so again, that's a show for another day and we've got great clips of him talking about that. But it, it, there's no question. the energy from from this was uh, was was shockingly uh, positive.
0: Yeah, Question without notice for you, Jeff? Is the USGA still relevant to the modern, younger generation of golfer? There was a time around, I recall it was early in the decade, around 2000, when we had two different sets of rules through a series of nonsense in Europe, or under the RNA and the USGA, and that's when they came together and made the statement of principles. There was a real danger around that time, a real sense that, in fact... The USGA could just completely lose relevance that the authorities could completely lose and, and golfers would just buy the equipment that they wanted to buy, whether it was um, legal, quote unquote, or, or not. Does the USGA still have relevance to golf or is it yours and my generation? Are we the last ones who sort of put our faith in them and want these traditions? And then, Do young golfers care about the USGA? Do they know about the USGA? Can the USGA really impact them?
1: well they impact them in the sense that their their rules are still very important their equipment rules are very important i don't sense that there's a uh, a real connect there no with the with the younger generation but i think the thing that still speaks to their their role in the game and their their power is is the simple fact that every manufacturer could go out there tomorrow and make whatever they want that does not conform to USGA rules. There's nothing preventing them from doing that. And yet they don't do it. They they don't go and make a ball that goes longer and exceeds uh, various limits. They don't. They, they just refuse. And so that does speak to the power of the rules of golf and, and the golfer's desire to continue to play by the rules and respect the rules. So for all the uh, the eye rolling we do at some of the ways they ways they word the rules, or are the way they conduct the U.S. Open, or whatever it is, um, they still are very relevant. And uh, and and hey, they're they're trying to do things about speed play, uh speed of play. Um, uh, and now there's some exciting dialogue coming from there about um, taking some of these initiatives and and trying to uh, do what they can to improve the sport. So. Um, I think that's very positive yeah,
0: they'll uh, they'll need to take the people with them won't they perhaps when we see the USGA app that's when they'll be hip and funky with the young people do you think yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder how far off that is alright that's a uh Enough of the USGA. Oh, hey, the rules of
1: golf are already an app, so I am shocked you don't have it downloaded <laughs> and spend your time in the, the grocery market line reading.
0: Well, I mean, it's we play un- app. It's- We play under the RNA down here in Australia, Jeff. I know that the rules oh, are the same, but you know, you you don't, you don't have to be running around with the USGA app on the phone. That's not going to not going to give you street cred with Australian golfers. We we are RNA people. Enough yeah, about the that. Your, the queen on your money, and I. yes, I know. Yes, we do, and I know that you know that because you passed over so much of it while you were down here that you got very <laughs> familiar with her appearance as you, were, as you were handing over the various notes and coins. Lots and lots and lots and lots more discussion will come out of that USGA annual meeting, but we will leave it for today and move on to some other things because otherwise we'll get wrapped up in it. Uh, for time immemorial one of the other issues that's been uh, going around for the last couple of months and you've been right across this on your blog and i know that you're interested to see what's going to happen is all this talk about what's going to happen with the u.s tour school the nationwide tour and they're talking about making some changes the notion is to get rid of the tour school and the only way to qualify to get on the pga tour will be uh via the nationwide tour the secondary tour so no more q school now our, as i mentioned in the opener our man in europe john Hugan, sat down with uh well, he's probably one of the most influential people in golf, actually, Chubby Chandler. He looks after the affairs of, well, he did look after the affairs of Rory McIlroy no more, but still has quite a few in his stable, high-profile players, Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, and some others. And, uh, and Huggy asked him about this. I'm just going to play this clip, Jeff, and then I'm going to get your thoughts on what he has to say about, uh, about the tour school.
2: I don't understand why they've done it. I, don't, I can't think that it's going to increase the profile of the nationwide tour that much because it's not the right sort of players to do it mm-hmm. um, what it probably does is safeguard a, a job for a few of the the guys that sort of were on the edge maybe I don't know I don't know whether that's anything to do with but I don't understand the reasoning behind it because in Ricky Fowler they had the perfect sounds corny American dream where mm-hmm. you know he got his card at the school and went to play Ryder right Cup the same year or the year, year after yeah. You know, to stop that dream seems a bit odd.
0: Now, I think you're in complete agreement with Chubby, are you not, Jeff? I think I've seen you write something very similar. If they do go ahead with this plan to get rid of the tour school, you lose the great American dream as it pertains to golf, don't you?
1: It's it's absolutely, to me, the number one reason why I've never understood this because it's not just, you're not just talking about uh, a few thousand golfers around the country who have this dream every year, perhaps of writing a check and and playing their way way onto the tour. You have their friends and family. You have people who sponsor them uh, as professionals who are people of means, who, uh, you know, play at a club and can afford to uh, uh, help a young man or uh, in the LPGA's case, a young woman uh, try and pursue their dreams. And, and, and all of those people are connected and love the tour and watch the tour. And so, to cut that off and to just make that a nationwide tour thing—that alone, right there—I can't comprehend because you're you're just going to change that democratic feel that that the tour has that no other sport has this ability to just write a check and and earn your way on through pure skill. And so, I uh, and then of course there's just the whole notion of uh, college players. You know, he's talking about Ricky Fowler. Chubby is there in, in his chat with with John Huggins, and uh, you know the tour's response has been well they're going to have a chance through exemptions to play their way on. Well, if they want to finish school here in the States, the NCAA championship ends in the first week of June – uh, then they that gives them just a little tiny window to earn enough money to play in this FedEx Cup series. It's it's just not going to happen. The way they the way they're they're portraying it, and I I just don't understand it in really in any regard.
0: Well, it's obviously to try and save the Nationwide Tour, which will be without a sponsor uh, as of well, next year. It
1: is, but we've also now since learned that it's part of a bigger picture, which uh, is is this notion of making the PGA Tour. Uh, year round. And that I also don't understand because uh, at some point you have to have a break. You have to just go away for a few weeks and let people get refreshed. And so we're now realizing this, this Q School nationwide tour thing is also part of a plan, to to restart the PGA Tour schedule in October, which has all sorts of other ramifications. It's
0: bizarre, isn't it? This is what the European Tour used to do until a year or two ago, when they changed change their schedule to actually stop starting the following year. You know, they didn't. They, they used to start 2010 in the 2009 calendar year, which was always seemed crazy. And you know, they've gone away from that now. It looks like the tour is going to it. Just on the Q School, Jeff. It seems to me one of the other things that that uh, that the tour might lose. My two favorite golf tournaments. Every year, or every second year in the case of the Ryder Cup, which is just fabulous, and Q School. It's one of the great tournaments, isn't it? As a spectator event, watching these guys try to, you know, and I'm pretty sure it gets coverage on the Golf Channel these days in the States. It's it one of the It's one of the great things to watch. Isn't it? The last day of tour school, you won't find more pressure or more intriguing golf than what you see on the last day of Q School.
1: Yeah, see, they would counter that, well, not many people watch it, and it, and, uh, it doesn't get a big rating, but, you know, the, the, you still have people go and cover it from a writing point of view, um, and again, you still have people all over the country country following this and following people they know, and, um, you know, I talked about this with with a player uh, down at Torrey Pines who um, played in it recently and played the Nationwide Tour, and now he's on the tour, and um, the combination of of uh, the people he's met along the way, you know, there are a lot of people following him and watching what he's doing. And no, it's not the uh, an audience the size of something watching Tiger play, but it's unique, uh, and and it's it's to me something very special. And it's produced some some great players and and um, and some great stories. And and I think it's fantastic that Ricky Fowler and Dustin Johnson have been uh, very vocal. They're two of the most recent prominent. Uh, graduates of the of the Q School, but this the the one that really stands out to me that that people don't talk about as much is Yi e. Yang. You know, he went to Q School and within a year and a half won a major championship. Now, if he if Q School isn't there for him, does he is he still just playing in Korea or you know and is he still kind of um, not a major winner? And I mean, you just start to think about the ramifications of something like that, which and that's a win that the tour. Loves. I mean, this is somebody who's besides the fact that he's just a great character. Um, it's, it's huge to get a, a Korean golfer, uh, winning a major and, and, and on uh, being such a prominent part of the uh, international stage. And, um, you know, again, would, would would he have had uh, that opportunity if he had to play a year on the Nationwide Tour? I don't know. It's Im- I, I don't think so, though. No,
0: it's impossible to say. And, of course, uh young guy by the name of John Ha will probably have an email in his inbox from Tim Fincham telling him to stop playing so well because he's the <laughs> ultimate Q School dream, isn't he? He went through all three stages to get his card, and he's now had two top fin- top ten finishes in two weeks, a kid that's come out of nowhere. Uh, that's what you lose, isn't it?
1: Uh, oh, I mean, you talk about somebody who literally has come out of nowhere. Uh, he didn't do much in college golf and junior golf and he's got, uh, his family's kind of the whole operation behind him. And, uh, and he's got a great last name and <laughs> I, the whole thing. It's just, yeah, I and mean, he's already playing this well at the start. You know, he did play, beat, uh, KJ Choi down the stretch last year in, in Asia, uh, this you know, who knows what could happen mm. with this this young man? He yeah. could be an amazing story, and again that that would never have happened. He'd be on the he'd be getting ready for his nation first nationwide tour event right now <laughs> instead of what he's just done the last couple of weeks.
0: Indeed, on a bit of a tangent, but you, you mentioned he's got a great name there. I heard a fabulous quote from a uh, a contributor to a, one of your American radio shows over there that I listen to on the net. He said, "On the US tour and now you've got ha na." and no three players, he said. Then the, the talk amongst the players and the, the caddies is they're actually not players. They're just Tigers' responses in his press conferences. No, nah, and ha. It's just, just a, it's a fabulous line, isn't it? But, uh, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to watch his progress this year because it's a fabulous story. And I think a lot of golf fans will be the same. As you said, who is this kid? And you go and look for the information, don't you? And as you say, he wouldn't get that if, uh, if he'd had to go through the nationwide tour route that they're proposing. Of course, um, the year-round aspect of this that you touched on where the, the U.S. Tour would be starting its, its next year in the year. That doesn't make any sense, does it? They'd start 2010 into a 2009 is the idea, yet the, the 2013 season will start in October this year. That's the thinking. Uh, it does have some implications for other tours, and Chubby had some interesting thoughts about that too. John Huggan asked him about that. Let's just have a listen to what Chubby had to say about that.
2: How do you think that will impact on the, the other tours? I mean, it's got implications for Australia, for example. We have, uh, you have know, three or four tournaments at the end of the year at a time when they could probably get some Americans. Now, if the Americans are stuck in them, they're going to be you know, losing out. I mean, what do you think? Not those Americans, though, is it? You know, at the end of the day, you can't... You can't get away from the fact that it's the top players in the world that make the top tournaments. So mm. I don't think it'll impact on any tours at all. I don't think it's the players... The, the category of player that's going to the tour school and the nationwide and playing at the end of the year will make any difference to, to any other tour The FedEx Cup points I mean, are going to be available late in the year so get, I mean, even the top guys are going to be loath to fall behind when they're, they're starting their, t- their season in October rather than January Yeah but I don't think they're going to have a full schedule are they? Well that's what they're talking about they d- They're having a full schedule from the first week in October I think so yeah from 2013. I, th- I think you'll find that the top players still do what they do now, and that'll be play HSBC and whatever other big tournament there might be mm-hmm. around, and maybe play the old one at home. But I can't, I can't think it'll make an awful lot of difference to everybody's tours. No, the thing called appearance money that usually sorts the fact out that people <coughs> travel. Yeah, but they've got appearance <coughs> money in America as well, don't they? Yeah. So what do they call it over there? Uh, yeah, it's, it's called a promotional fee, I think, but it's exactly the same as
0: our promotional fees. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, leaving aside the particularly interesting and cutting remarks about appearance fees on the US tour, which might be a whole other show in itself, uh, I was interested in Chubby's answer. He's, he's probably right, and coming from the Australian perspective, what, what we saw down here at the back end of last year with the President's Cup was a fabulous Australian Open based on the fact a bunch of Americans in particular came here and played the Australian Open the week before the President's Cup, and that sort of thing won't change. But it seems to me the implications for the other two as Jeff, might actually be more our local players here in Australia who will feel the pressure, and it's more maybe the second-tier players, not so much the Ogilvies and the Allenbys whose cards are secure and those sorts of things, but those players on that second tier, the Greg Chalmers and the Rod Pamplings and those guys, who might start thinking they really can't afford to come back to Australia and play in their own home events because they need to stay in America and get their next year kicked off on in a good way. It seems to me that's probably more the danger as far as impacting other tours. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's dangerous in, in both regards. I disagree with Chubby regarding the top players. I definitely agree with you about uh, the, the second-tier players. There's just no way when you have a year-round schedule and it's going what you do in October and November matters uh, uh, for the money list – uh, they're going to have to play those events. They're going to have to add a few events here and there, and then they're going to end up cutting events when they, if, perhaps, if they were planning on coming back home. But I also think, I just think it's naive to think that the top players uh, will will stick to the same exact schedule they have now. I think it's just going to be bizarre not to get in a few starts, in that, and that, and especially in the United States, the fall events are actually very good events now. Um, and and they're they've got good sponsors and and they're playing pretty good courses, and I I just don't see how they think guys are going to kind of uh, uh, pick and choose and and I also don't see how they're going to stick with the fifteen event minimum um, that's been assured that that's going to stay I don't see how when you, if you have a year round schedule that's not going to expand but um, maybe I'm naive but I my biggest problem of course with all of this is that I just I just think it's too much golf. There's got to be a point where uh, there's a quiet period, and
0: uh, for players and uh, fans, Jeff. I mean, the players need a break, but the fans need a break too, don't they?
1: Taddies, uh, everybody involved. Uh, you know, every sport here in the United States, uh, and really uh, most major sports, go away for a while, and and even if it's just for a month or three weeks, uh, you still need that. You still need that buffer to 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 kind of quiet down and let everybody regroup and. And I'm I'm writing a piece right now for Golf World where I think this is just going to be deadly for the West Coast swing of the PGA Tour, which has been a a huge part of of building the tour into what it is. You know these are these are your old friends. These are your your kind of your classic standby events. Uh, 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 just they're stalwarts of the PGA Tour, and um, uh, they they get very good ratings because of the weather uh, this time of year. And here you you know you're gonna ask guys to play in the fall, uh, and then they really need to play pretty much uh, March through uh, the fall, uh, and and then where are they gonna take a break? And I think it's gonna be January and February when when the the, the PGA Tour comes to the West Coast. Uh, you reckon that's already a struggling part of the schedule because of uh, what's been going on, you know, with that with the european events that time of
0: year do you reckon they've thought this through properly jeff i'm listening to you as you're saying that and you're right it makes absolute sense you know okay if they're going to have full field events at the end of the year that count towards the following year's money list uh you're already playing you've just come off the the big summer and all the big events and all that sort of stuff you're more likely to tee it up towards the end of the year and take some time off early in the year aren't you and you're exactly right well it hasn't been the bing crosby for a long time but Events like the Bing Crosby and the Bob Hope, those staples on the USA, they, they may be the ones that stand to suffer the most. You've just reversed the end of the year where you've got this problem of you know having good, strong, competitive golf yeah. fields.
1: And why, to me, why you would do that to a portion of the schedule that's that's so high profile, that's been so steady and reliable, um, is just a, a mystery. And I, I'm torn on whether, I, I know they've thought all this through, but it, it just seems like uh, somebody is is really pushing hard. You know, this whole thing, it's bizarre. It started with nationwide uh deciding that it wanted to be part of Jack Nicholas's tournament and they're putting their money into that. And then it's just kind of snowballed from there where, well, now we could get more for that nationwide tour sponsorship if there's a season ending thing and then we have to move to Q School. And it just it's just one thing after another. And as as one player uh, was telling me at Tory Pines last week, he what what you know, the number one priority is the PGA Tour. And, you know, why they're fussing about trying to get more money for the nationwide tour, uh, you know, if it's a big money loser, then the guy said, well, you know, maybe we just have to get rid of it or get rid of the Champions Tour or do something. But, you know, you you cannot harm the, the, the main tour. And that's your main, that's your baby, that's, that's it. And I just see all these different little things going on in this that, that harm the PGA Tour, and that's what I can't, I can't get my head around is is uh, whether they've they've thought all these things through. It'd be
0: a hell of a thing to try and run, wouldn't it? I mean, I I don't often empathize or feel sorry for Tim Finchin, but sometimes no, when you but, sit back and look at the size of the job, you can't help but think it it's not exactly. as not as easy as and, it looks from the outside.
1: Oh, there's so many moving parts. However, I do think ultimately this a lot of this stems from this obsession with growth. You know, every press conference he's talking about how we grow and grow the tour, grow this, grow that. Well, you know, the the this, there's only so many weeks in the year, and at some point, this this thirst for growth um, leads to just being an oversaturation. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing here: is is this? Uh, there's just too much uh, they're trying to do almost, and. Uh, so, and we'll see how it plays out. The player reaction has been very negative, but that, that generally has not deterred the tour from,
0: from going ahead. And well, on. well, is it a done deal? There was talk a few weeks ago yeah. that it is a done deal, but I'm starting to get the sense that perhaps it's not a done deal. You're, you're right. There's been a real pushback from the players and some high-profile players, hasn't there? So it may not be a done deal as yet.
1: No, and, and again, they don't care if there's been pushback from the players. More importantly, has there been pushback from the sponsors? Mm. And, I mean, if I'm a sponsor of a West Coast uh, swing event... I am not happy Mm. about this idea of a year-round schedule. I've already, you know, I'm I'm already competing with Abu Dhabi and Dubai uh, and appearance fees and and all these different things that are going on. And the last thing I need is is uh, you know to to now throw out the whole kind of natural rhythm of the year where we we start on the West Coast and Mm. and there's kind of a freshness to it and. So I think that's the more interesting question is whether the sponsors are
0: speaking up. It'll be uh, it'll be interesting to, to hear it. I won't play the clip, but the, the final thing that I had here from Chubby that I thought was really interesting and it may be the only positive to come from it, he suggests that perhaps what we might see is a a whole lot more Americans going to try and get their card on the European tour via their Q school. And that could be an interesting offshoot, couldn't it? I don't think it would hurt American golfers to get out and about a little bit more than what we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years. That might be a positive, mightn't it? Because if the only way to the U.S. tour is via the nationwide tour, you might be better off playing a year on the European tour instead and trying to get through that way.
1: Yeah, I think it's a fascinating theory. and um I, th- I, I, I would love to see more Americans do that. I think what uh, what uh, Peter Uline's doing is fantastic. You know, I've watched him play, and he's an immensely talented mm. golfer. But you do get a sense that he's a bit of a, um, a, a an American, and you you watch him and you think, you know, this is somebody who needs to get out and see some different parts of the world and um, experience some different things. And I think that will just make him a better player. Uh, and and I, I it would not surprise me if if this action has will will drive some guys to do that, yeah. as Chubby predicted.
0: Of course, Peter Yline signed with Chubby Chandler as his manager, which people found surprising, and then joining the European tour. Which people have found found surprising. So perhaps uh, his dad will be happy though, Jeff, because he'll be pushing the Pro V1 all around the world. If he's uh, if he's playing the European Tour, it's expanding their network into uh, into all corners of the globe. Fascinating stuff. Just to wrap it up this week, Jeff, and it's a, it's a. It's a bit more of a current thing. The Australian Ladies Open, co-sanctioned with the LPGA Tour this year uh, for the first time. I'm pretty sure I know they've sponsored the Masters here previously, co-sanctioned it, but this is the first time the Australian Women's Open. But more importantly, at Royal Melbourne, where we met up in November last year for the President's Cup. I'm assuming that it's going to be available on television there in the States, and I'm assuming that you'll be glued to it, fascinated to see how the, women, the best women players in the world deal with one of the world's great golf courses.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I didn't get to watch any of the President's Cup uh, except on television there in the press center, so it'll be fun to be sitting here at home and and to uh, kind of stay up late and watch uh, the coverage and to see how the course looks now after... Uh, I mean, namely, I'm just interested in seeing what's happened now that the weather's gotten warmer. We were there in essentially your spring, and so there was a little more uh, rough than, than uh, we a lot of us thought we would see at, at a place like that, and so it'll be fun to see what's kind of burned out and um, and just how it plays for the women. I, I, uh, I think it'll be fantastic. And, and I believe they're keeping the same, um, uh, uh routing is that correct Are uh, playing the
0: same. that's as I understand it though I must be honest I haven't looked into it all that deeply it's only Wednesday here we'll take some interest tomorrow when it actually gets underway yeah. although I did speak to uh, our mate Mike Clayton uh, via email the other day and I asked him if he'd been out to the course and how I was looking he actually caddied for Jessica Corder in a practice round last Sunday he told me he said the greens were firm or the greens were hard and running at about 11 so that will be uh, exact yeah, exactly that'll be an interesting test and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to watching it on unf- Jeff, we've gone beyond the time we were hoping to take today, but it is the sort of stuff, this state of the game stuff, that just gets you in. And you, the more you talk about it, the more interesting topics open up. But we'll call it call it quits for the day. Uh, thank you for coming along, taking some time, and your input from the uh, from the USGA meeting. Always great to chat to you.
1: Yeah, well, thank you, and thank you for getting all those clips uh, together so we could play that. I, I think it was uh, fun to hear some other people talk, and uh, and we've got some more great stuff from the USGA meeting. Uh,
0: had, Yeah, I think. indeed. I was just about to say it's it for this week, but good content coming up in the next couple of weeks here on State of the Game. We're going to get Mike Clayton to drop in in the next week or so and chat about the issue of the belly putters and some of the things that, that were talked about at the USGA meeting. You've sent us some great audio of uh, Glenn Nager talking about that, so we've got that on the table. We've also got to request in with Greg Turner. I think we're going to get him to have a chat to us, Greg, you would be familiar Greg. with Greg. He's a touring professional turn course designer from New Zealand. Really interesting and intelligent bloke. He's written some fabulous essays says on his website about golf course design. He's also got some interesting insights about State of the Game as well. So there's just a couple of things to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. So if you're out there and listening, subscribe to the iTunes feed. Jeff will put a link to the iTunes feed with the uh, the State of the Game podcast when it goes up on the site uh, a bit later today. You will do that, won't you, Jeff? I will. Yeah, so people can subscribe via iTunes so you can uh, get on there, keep coming back and checking out more installments of State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music writers retreat provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.loydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkinggolf.com When
2: you get back from the writers retreat, I won't. Do-